Well, good morning. It is really great to see everybody here this morning on the first gathering of Trinity Church. Uh, thanks for being here. My name is DJ. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity, and today it's going to be my privilege to open God's Word and lead us in our study of it this morning. So we are thrilled to have you with us. If you're a first-time guest with us this morning, then you're going to fit right in because so is everybody else. So <laughs> thanks for coming out. Uh, just a couple things before we get started. This is a listening guide. You might have gotten one on your way in. If you did not, um, it's going to have some information on the text, uh, help you follow along with the sermon. So if you did not get one, you can just slip your hand up and somebody from the back will make sure that you get one. Uh, and it's going to help as we follow along in the book of Matthew this morning. So if you have a copy of God's Word, if you could take it out uh, and turn with us to Matthew chapter 28. Uh, Matthew 28, we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 20 this morning. Uh, this is a big day. This is an exciting day. Uh, a lot of people have worked really hard uh, to help make this morning happen, uh, and the planning has been going on for months, but in reality, God's planning of this day has gone on for far longer. Um, God promises to be with his church, to build his church, to sustain his church. And so we exist this morning, we gather this morning, not to accomplish some goal that we've dreamt up, but we want to fulfill the mission that God has given to his church. Uh, and so that's why our mission statement is this text we're going to look at this morning. It's what a, a passage of scripture that people have called the Great Commission, Jesus' final words to his disciples to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. We figure Jesus can probably write a better mission statement for the church than we could come up with. So we're going to go with what he says. And our vision to implement that mission is centered around three things, three core values that we're very passionate about here at Trinity, the gospel, the Bible, and the church. But how do they factor into our mission to make disciples? Well, this morning, what I want us to do is I want to lead us in a study of these last few verses of Matthew and kind of set the table for us as a church family as we get this thing started, as we start meeting weekly, as we want to, to be faithful to fulfill this mission, what does that look like for us? And what part do all of us play in making sure that the mission of Trinity, which is Christ's mission, is fulfilled? And so I'm thankful that you've decided to join us to answer those questions, and I hope you'll continue to join us through the weeks to come as we seek to put these things into practice. But for now, let's go ahead and start by reading together Matthew, verses, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Uh, if you have a copy of God's Word, if not, it's going to be up here on the screen, I believe, so that you can follow along. Let's read together. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Will you pray with me briefly as we go ahead and start studying this passage? God, our Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, Give us, and what we are not, make us. For your name's sake, and for the sake of your church and your kingdom, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So when we sat down at Trinity to establish our mission statement, Pastor David, Pastor Tom, and myself, we were, we were looking at what is our mission of the church. Honestly, it was a pretty short conversation. Uh, the church doesn't get to determine our own mission. That's something that Jesus does for us. And it's something that we notice very quickly here in this text, uh, that Jesus sets our mission, not us. 
And so he's getting ready to ascend into heaven. Let's kind of set the context. It's always important to study God's word in its context to know what's going on. So Jesus has lived, he's died, he's risen from the dead, he's appeared to his disciples, and now he's getting ready to to go up into heaven and he's giving them this final commission, these last words of what it is that they're to do as he leaves them. What is the mission that he's leaving behind for his disciples to accomplish? And he's going to be telling them what it is to do. But before he even tells them what it is to do, he's going to tell them why that they should do it. He gives us a reason before he gives us a command. Verse 18, he says to them, he says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now that's a pretty incredible claim, right? I mean, I would imagine that there's probably two different ways you might hear this this morning. If you've grown up in the church, if you're familiar with this passage, familiar with the Bible, you probably hear that claim and think, yeah, yeah, that's what Jesus says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You're familiar with it, right? It sounds normal. If you're a newcomer to Christianity, maybe you've never read the Bible much, maybe you've never encountered Jesus other than what you hear from pop culture at large, you're probably thinking, whoa, 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 wait a minute. This guy is saying that All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. In essence, he's saying, I am in charge of the universe. Like, people don't say that. That's, That's a pretty big claim to sit here and make. You're telling me that Jesus says he's in charge of everything? So on what basis can he make this claim? Like, if I were to stand up here this morning and say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, you should run for the back door as fast as you can possibly go. If you met somebody on the street or on TV who said that, you'd shut off the TV or you'd say, that guy's crazy. So why should we take Jesus seriously when he says this? Well, throughout his life and ministry, Jesus didn't claim just all authority. Jesus claimed to be God himself. He told people that he was the God who created heaven and earth, come to earth in human form. And I want to read us through a passage in John, just a little encounter that Jesus had with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, where this really comes front and center. I want you to see how how radical a thing this is that Jesus claims. So he's talking to the Pharisees in John 8, 51 through 59. He says this, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? So in essence, they're saying, who do you think you are? Like, I love that. Now we know you have a demon. We had our suspicions earlier, but now you've clarified it for us. Thank you, Jesus. What do you think you're doing? What are you saying? Jesus replies, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now catch what he says here, because it's not immediately apparent if we're not familiar with the Old Testament, with God's revelation to his people in Israel. When God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, if you're familiar with that story, 
what he says to them, or what he says to Moses is, is he, he tells him, go and go before Pharaoh, tell him to let my people go. And Moses said, but, but what's your name, God? If they ask, who sent you? Who am I supposed to say sent me? And, and the Lord reveals his name to Moses. He said, tell them that I am sent you. And so the Old Testament personal name of God that he gives, Yahweh, is, is the, the Hebrew for I am. And so when Jesus is talking to these guys and they say, look, you're telling us you've seen Abraham and you're not even 50 yet? Jesus says, we would expect him to say maybe before Abraham was, I was, right? That would be grammatically correct. But he says, before Abraham was, I am. They knew exactly what he was claiming. Because what do they do? They pick up stones to kill him on the spot for blasphemy. They think he's blaspheming God. They understood what Jesus was claiming. This is a massive claim. He claims the authority of God himself. But again, why should we believe he actually has it? After all, Jesus isn't the only person in human history to claim divinity, right? Kings, emperors, religious leaders, lots of people have laid claim to being greater than human, to being God or God-like. So why should we take Jesus' claim more seriously than all of theirs? Well, the Bible invites us to evaluate Jesus' claims of authority on the basis of the time and space historicity of an actual event, his resurrection from the dead. You see, if Jesus made these incredible claims, then, and, and he lived and he died just like anybody else through human history, then it would be easy enough for us to say, well, you know, nice guy, said some great things, but... God, really? Why should we believe that? But what if he triumph over death, the great leveler of humanity, right? None of us can escape death. It's coming for everybody. Everybody tries to prolong their life, to, to maybe pretend it's not coming, but find me a person who hasn't died in human history, the 100% death rate. And so if we have a guy who claims to be God and then comes back from the grave, suddenly we have to take his claims a little bit more seriously, don't we? And that's exactly what the Bible invites us to do. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and he's trying to, to tell them about, uh, he's confronting doubts that they have, right? They have doubts that anybody rises from the dead. And Paul's saying, look, if you have doubts that anybody rises from the dead, then Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we are all in trouble. Listen to what he says. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God that he raised Christ, who he did not raise if it's true the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. See, some would say today well, that it really doesn't matter if Jesus rose from the dead or not. Maybe, maybe it's a, a true story. Maybe it's just a nice myth or, or a fairy tale that, and, and, you know, spiritually Jesus triumphed over death, but really physically he didn't rise from the dead. Modern people say, we can't believe that, right? And it really doesn't matter. The stories and what Jesus taught is still true whether he lived and died and rose again or not. And Paul disagrees. Paul says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if our hope in Christ is about this life only, then we are to be pitied more than all people. We are a sad lot because we're wasting our lives talking and following some dead guy who's gone, just like countless other dead guys throughout history. Might have great ideas, might have good ideas, but it can't ultimately save us from our human predicament. We believe that Jesus sets the mission because he has been raised from the dead, demonstrating that he is indeed God in the flesh and he holds all authority, 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. In short, we believe that Jesus is Lord of everything. And everything that we do, we do because of that reality. And so we don't set the mission of the church. We don't say why Trinity exists. God has already done that for us. Christ has given us our mission. Now, granted, that's still a big claim. You might think, okay, well, it's easy enough to say he rose from the dead. How how am I supposed to believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, that's a rabbit that we can't chase this morning, but I hope you'll stick around and I hope we can have conversations. If you've got doubts about the resurrection, if you're wondering how this can be true, we'd love to have that conversation with you here at Trinity. But that's why we do what we do, because we believe that Christ has risen, that he's Lord, he runs the universe, he's in charge of the church, and so we take our marching orders from him. So what is our mission then? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, go therefore. All right, Jesus, what do we do? Give us the orders. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Quite simple, our mission is to make disciples. Jesus is Lord, he sets our mission, he calls us to go out and to make disciples, to baptize them and to teach them. And so that's kind of what his command here is wrapped up in. He says, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. So let's stop and talk about his command to baptize and his command to teach, and then you'll see where do our passions come from. Those three passions I talked about earlier, we're passionate about the gospel, the Bible, and the church. Here's where we get that out of this text. So what is baptism? When he says baptize people, what does that mean? Well, baptism isn't some magical spiritual ceremony that gives us special spiritual benefits. It's a public declaration of a changed heart. When we look at baptism in the Bible, in the New Testament, baptism is a public profession of a reality that has taken place within somebody's heart, that they have embraced Christ, they've believed in him, and then this is a way to publicly identify with what has already happened within It's a public declaration of repentance and faith in Jesus. And you even see that symbolically in what happens when you baptize. Someone is buried with Christ in baptism and then raised to walk in newness of life. It is an identification with him. So Jesus tells us to do this. He tells us to go out and to baptize people, to teach them the gospel, to encourage a profession of faith in the gospel, and then have them identify with him and his church. This is why we're passionate about the gospel. If we want to make disciples, we have to be about the gospel message that we're calling people to identify with in baptism. So what is the gospel? It's a word that gets thrown around a lot in church, but what does it actually mean? Literally, the word means good news. Uh, And while it's very much a churchy word today, you won't really hear it much outside of church or religious context, it was a very common word in the time when Jesus spoke it to his disciples and when they went around preaching. Uh, The gospel was a term that meant good news, and it was usually associated with either political rulers or military leaders of proclamations of their victories and the benefits that people enjoyed because of those victories. Declaration of the triumphs of a king or a general, and then what that meant for the people. So let's say that you're Julius Caesar, and you've led the Roman army, and they've gone out, and they've beaten back the barbarians and secured peace and prosperity for the people. You would send uh, send, uh, ambassadors, basically, through the empire to tell people 
that Julius Caesar has won this great victory and he has secured peace and prosperity and so we should praise him and thank him. They would go out proclaiming the gospel of Julius Caesar, what he has done and why it is a great thing for everyone who lives under his rule. Can you see why Christians chose this word gospel to represent what they were doing? We proclaim what it is that Jesus has done and the benefits that that offers to all mankind. Jesus' gospel is, in short, his sinless life, his death on our behalf for our sins, and his resurrection from the dead to demonstrate his victory over sin and death. That's what he did. And what it offers to us, he calls us to repent of our sin, to turn away from our evil, from our rebellion against God that every single human being is guilty of, and to trust in Jesus to reconcile us to God. And what he offers to us is peace with God and eternal life, fellowship with the one who created us, who we've rejected, who we've ignored, who we've pretended isn't there. He offers reconciliation and peace with God. And so baptism is the way we express to the watching world that this gospel has become a reality for us. So that's why we're passionate about the gospel at Trinity. Everyone, everyone in this room, everyone outside of this room, everyone who's ever walked the planet has fallen short of the righteous life that God requires. And thus everyone needs God's grace. We need the grace that is offered through the gospel. Otherwise, we will face God on our own on account of our sin. If Christ doesn't cover the sin that I've committed, then one day I will die. I will stand before God and I will have to answer for all of the things that I have done in this life. And I'm not prepared to do that. I don't think that's going to go too well for me. I don't know how you're feeling this morning. Because God promises a standard of perfect righteousness. He is perfect in his goodness and his love and his holiness. And if we miss that standard, he promises justice. And we love justice, right? Everybody loves justice for other people. Like, we want justice for Hitler. We want justice for people who talk at movie theaters. We want justice for... (laughs) People that are outside of us who do things that irritate us and that we don't like. But justice for me? Well, I have to answer for my hateful thoughts that I have. I have to answer for my lustful impulses. I have to answer for my lies, for my hatred of people who irritate me. I I I have to answer to God for these things, for my rejection of the one who created me and loves me perfectly. That's why we're passionate about the gospel, because I need it, and you need it. And we don't want people to walk into one service here or sit in on one community group and leave without understanding what the gospel message is and why it matters so much to us. We're passionate about the gospel at Trinity, and we want you to be too. Now, how do we know what the gospel is? I've just stood here and told you all these things about the gospel, but how do I know that that's the message we're supposed to proclaim? Well, the answer is found in the Bible, right? Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. How do we know what Jesus has commanded us? Through his word, through the Bible. And that's why we are passionate about the Bible here at Trinity. That's why it's our second core passion. The Bible is God's perfect revelation of himself to humanity. And people have a lot of beliefs about the Bible in our society. People think different things. Well, it's, it's just a book. It's just written by people. How can we trust it? It's full of errors and contradictions. Everybody's got an opinion on the Bible. Why do we believe that the Bible is something that we need to listen to, that we need to study? Because what the Bible says is that using human authors, 
There are various personalities, multiple languages, many literary genres. There's, if you open up the Bible, you'll find all sorts of different types of writing, different ways of communicating. There's the Psalms that we read this morning that are, that are basically songs, poems about God. There are historical stories that tell us about figures like Moses and David and Elijah and Jesus and Paul. There are uh, proverbs in there. There is apocalyptic literature, visions of the end that we see in Revelation and throughout Daniel and Ezekiel. All sorts of different types of literature using different human authors. We see their personalities come out. We see Paul's personality come out when he writes. We see Matthew's personality come out when he writes. But using all of these different people and all of these different types of writing, God inspired them in such a way that their words aren't only their words, but they're God's words too. They wrote exactly what God wanted to communicate to us, not by like God taking control of them like a robot and dictating exactly what he wanted to say, but in a way beyond our comprehension, God used them to produce his word. And so we want to know the Bible inside and out because through it, we come to understand who God is, what God is like, who we really are, what our predicament is before a holy God, what God requires of us, what the gospel offers to us, all these things come to us through the Bible. And so when we gather together as Trinity Church, we want the Bible to be at the forefront of everything that we're doing. But we're not calling people to follow some message that we've dreamed up. It isn't our job to set the mission, and it's not our job to set the message. You know, notice what he says here. He says, go therefore Uh, teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. He doesn't say, teach them to observe everything I've commanded you and a few other things that you want to make up. But that's what we like to do, right? We we need some extra rules because Jesus didn't, didn't tell us quite enough. So we need to say some things here or change some things there. No, teach them to observe, to obey everything that I've commanded you. And that's why Sunday after Sunday, Pastor David, Pastor Tom, myself, we're not gonna get up here and give you our thoughts and opinions on how to make your life better. Honestly, why on earth would you want to wake up on a Sunday morning and come listen to that? Like, what do I have to tell you that's going to make any lick of difference in your life? We're going to get up here and we want to unpack the Bible for you. And what we're going to do most weeks, next week we're starting into a study of the book of Colossians. We're going to open Colossians and we're going to walk through it paragraph by paragraph, sentence by sentence, week by week. And we want to understand what it says, how to understand it in its context, and then apply it to our lives. That's what preaching is going to look like here at Trinity Church. We want to unpack the Bible for us, for you, to know how to understand it and apply it. If we stop doing that, and we start offering our own hot takes on the the issues of the day, again, you need to run for the back door. You need to get out of here. Because that's not going to help you. In fact, it's going to harm you. Because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. We proclaim his word. We want to point you to his truth. So we can't obey Jesus's command to make disciples without the Bible. So we want it to be central to everything that we do. We're passionate about the gospel. We're passionate about the Bible. So now we're getting an idea of what Jesus calls us to do, right? But how do we do it? Okay, we, we, need, to, we need to baptize. We need to teach people everything that Jesus told them. You know, so, so what does that look like? Because it sounds a lot like college, right? We're going we're gonna to tell people the gospel. We're going to teach people everything Jesus told us to teach. And maybe college sounds fun to you sometimes, but, you know, let's, let's be honest. We don't want to sit in a lecture hall day after day. Is that really what the Christian life is like? 
Well, let's stop and look at the context again. Who's Jesus talking to here? He's talking to 11 guys. And what do we call them? We call them the disciples. So he's telling a bunch of guys that we call the disciples to go and make disciples. So it begs the question, if we want to know how we should do it, what should it look like? How do do these commands get fleshed out in everyday life? Well, how did Jesus do it? Because he just spent all this time with these 11 guys. so, So how did he make disciples? Because he's calling them to do for others what he has just done for them. So how did he make disciples? What I'm going to do is give you a quick survey of the book of Luke and different ways that we see Jesus making disciples throughout the book of Luke. And if you're writing down and taking notes, I'm going to just be rattling off a bunch of stuff here. So don't worry about trying to write all these down. Uh, Maybe on the the website and the Facebook page when the sermon posts this week, I'll post these up here if you want to have a written copy and be able to see all of these. Um, But how did Jesus make disciples? What did he do to to help turn these 11 fishermen, these uneducated guys, these guys with no background into the guys who would go out and change the world through proclaiming the gospel. Well, in Luke 5, 1 through 11, he called them to follow him. Right? That's, that's the entry gate. He says, come and follow me. And that's a lot of times, that's the only part of disciple making that we think about. Let's go tell people the gospel. Let's tell them to follow Jesus. And that's how we make disciples. Well, that's like step one of 500. So what else does he do after that? Well, Luke 5, 29 through 32, he ate and drank with them. Luke 6, 12 through 16, he invested especially with a select few of them. Luke 6, 20 through 49, he taught them. There's another one of those familiar ones. He, you know, we, we teach everything that he's commanded us. Jesus taught the disciples, but he did it in the context of a greater endeavor of, of all of life. In Luke 8, 4 through 15, he used stories to explain spiritual truth to them. Side note, fiction matters, right? The stories that captivate your heart, your mind, whether they're on the page, whether they're on the screen, they matter. They, they say something to us about this world, about this life, about why we're here. And so when you enjoy stories and when you fill your mind with, with entertainment, don't shut your brain off. Because those stories are telling you something. They speak to you on a really gut level. Jesus knew that. He designed us that way. And so he used stories to communicate spiritual truth. Fiction matters. Sidebar over. He met them in their fears in Luke 8, 22 through 25. In Luke 9, 1 through 6, he sent them out to learn by doing. In Luke 9, 10 through 17, he challenged them to grow in faith. In Luke 9, 18 through 20, he pointed them to his divinity in Luke 9, 21 through 22, he focused them on his death and resurrection. In Luke 9, 23 through 27, he called them to suffer. In Luke 9, 28 through 36, he gave them glimpses of his glory. In Luke 9, 46 through 48, he rebuked them in their selfishness and pride. In Luke 9, 49 through 50, he rebuked their tendency to spiritual cliquishness. Right? wanted to hang out in their little group, and everybody who was outside of that group was outside of God. Luke 10, 23 through 24, he encouraged them. Luke 11, 1 through 13, he taught them how to pray. Luke 11, 27 through 28, he uplifted God's word in their presence. 11, 29 through 32, he taught them to see that the Old Testament scriptures were about him. 12, 1 through 3, he warned them against hypocrisy. 12, 8 through 12, he taught them to trust the Holy Spirit. 12, 13 through 34, he taught them to trust God for their physical needs. 12, 35 through 59, he taught them to see the world, the whole world, through spiritual eyes. 13, 1 through 9, he called them to repentance. 
1322 through 35, he taught them that their faith, not their religious identity, would save them. 15, 1 through 32, he impressed upon them God's redemptive heart. 16, 18, he emphasized a biblical view of sexuality. 17, 7 through 10, he warned them against feeling spiritually entitled. 18, 1 through 14, he used everyday scenarios to teach them and to illustrate the kingdom of God. In 18, 15 through 17, he taught them to value kids. 19, 1 through 10, he showed them that there are no spiritual lost causes. Nobody is beyond redemption. 19, 41 through 44, he modeled a broken heart for lost people. 20, 45 through 47, he warned them against professional spirituality. 21, 1 through 4, he taught them the true nature of generosity. 21, 5 through 38, he called them to live, not just in the here and now, but with an eye to the future. 22, 24 through 30, he modeled the attitude of a servant. 22, 39 through 46, he modeled dependence on God during times of suffering and distress. And then 23, 34, as they nailed him to a cross, he modeled love for his enemies. And now he stands before them, raised from the dead, encouraging and empowering them in light of his death and resurrection to go into all the world to make disciples of all nations. So what do we get? Why did I just recite half the book of Luke to you right here? Because disciple-making is a comprehensive effort that involves and encompasses all of life. You can't do all of those things that Jesus just did in a lecture hall. We live together. We teach, we encourage, we build up, we model, we practice, we do all of these things as we live life together. And because of that, disciple-making is a group effort, right? Jesus is talking to how many guys here? Eleven, not one. We walk together to follow Christ. Jesus is wanting us to go into all the world as a group, make disciples of all nations, calling people into community with one another. And that's why we're passionate about the church. Now, this might seem obvious, right? Okay, Trinity Church is passionate about the church. Like, isn't every church supposed to be passionate about the church? In fact, it seems a little self-serving, right? Like, we think we're awesome. This is great. That's not what I mean here. When we, t- when we say that we're passionate about the church, I don't mean that we're passionate about this building, though it's fantastic. I don't mean that we're passionate about a series of events on Sundays or in, in the middle of the week in our homes. I don't mean that I'm passionate about... Uh, an organization or a way of doing things. When I say that we're passionate about the church, we're passionate about people because the church is people. And we can't go it alone spiritually. Following Jesus is a group project and that's why we gather on Sundays. That's why we're gonna gather in community groups during the week in our homes. That's why we're gonna get together to do things together, to proclaim the gospel because we need each other. God designed us to function in community with one another. You can't operate as a Christian by yourself. You can't be obedient to all these commands that God gives by yourself. How do do you love one another, encourage one another, rebuke one another, sing with one another, pray for one another, do all of these things that the Bible tells us to do for one another by yourself? It's hard. Try it sometime. Sit alone in your closet and try to love people. It it might seem great in your head, but you're not actually following Jesus' commands. Making disciples isn't just something for professionals to do. It's what God calls all of us to do as disciples of Jesus. 
And we can't be obedient to do the things the Bible calls us to do if we're not living in real community with other Christians. And so as your pastors, we're passionate about the church. Because we're passionate about the church, we don't want to just be making disciples. We want to be teaching you how to make disciples. Because this command goes out to all of us, not just to, to the spiritual like top 5%, the really go-getters. If you want to go and do these things and be super spiritual, you make disciples. No, everybody is called to make disciples. And everybody can make disciples. It sounds really intimidating, maybe. You think, I'm not, I'm not really an extrovert. I kind of keep to myself. I don't like to be a public speaker or, or I don't have a lot of knowledge. I, I can't be a disciple maker. You, you don't have to be. You don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to be a community group leader. You don't have to be a seminary student. You don't have to be a good speaker. You don't have to have Grudem Systematic Theology memorized. You don't even have to own a copy of Grudem Systematic Theology. You don't even have to know what it is. You can make disciples. All you have to do is speak about the gospel message with people as you have opportunity and invest in the lives of the people around you in the same ways we saw Jesus in just that, in that long list, the same way he invested in the lives of his disciples. So think about this. What, what are some ways that you could make disciples? Well, maybe you're gifted to, to start and to lead a Bible study to introduce some of your friends to Jesus. Or maybe you're gifted to open your nice, spacious, comfy living room to host that Bible study and make coffee for the people who come. Both are disciple-making opportunities, right? Actually teaching the Bible and leveraging what God has given you to help the, the word go forth are both ways of making disciples. God gifts different people in different ways. Bible, uh, disciple-making is intentional, it's something that we, we have to set out to do, and it's something that we all need to be ready to give an answer when we have the opportunity to speak into somebody's life. But there's countless ways that you can be involved in the mission of Trinity. You can be involved in Jesus's mission to make disciples. So who should you be discipling? Or if you're a parent, you have at least one person you can be discipling today, who you must be discipling today. That's why we're passionate about reaching kids, and that's why we have Trinity Kids meeting right down the hill right now, not just letting them have fun and eat goldfish, although if there's no goldfish, we're in trouble, uh, but we get together and we teach them the Bible in a way that's appropriate for their age because we want kids to understand these things. Who among your friends, family, community group, co-workers, neighbors are either not Christians or Christians who are not quite as far along the road of following Jesus as you are? You can disciple them. You've only got to be five minutes further down the road than somebody else to be a discipler. You don't have to have all the answers. You just need to be leading. Discipleship is not like an intentional, or it is intentional. It's not an official designated activity where you're going to sit down, okay, Fred, now it's time for me to disciple you. So let's start, and then we'll finish, and now discipling is over. Let's move on. No, it encompasses all of life. It's intentional. It's not going to happen on accident, but it encompasses all of life. It's throughout the ups, the downs, the in-betweens of everyday nine-to-five living. So our mission, straight from Jesus's mouth, is to make disciples of all people. And that is why we're passionate about the gospel, we're passionate about the Bible, and we're passionate about the church, because we can't make disciples without all of those things. We will be sunk. That's what we want Trinity to be about. So, easy job, right? Let's go. How on earth are we going to accomplish this? How are we going to do this? Like, make disciples of all nations. You equipped for that challenge? You ready to go? 
Are we crazy people for even trying? Maybe. If it weren't for the promise that Jesus closes with. Verse 20, I have uh, observe all that I've commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you always. These were scared guys, man. You look at the, the disciples, their track record, not fantastic. When Jesus is going to the cross, he's getting arrested, they run for their lives. Peter, Peter is like, man, he's the top of the list. He's one of those special few that Jesus really spent a lot of time with. And Jesus gets arrested, and Peter's like, man, Jesus, if they come for you, I will die right next to you. Let's go. And Jesus says, slow your roll, Peter, because it it might not be quite so easy as you think. And he's like, no, I'm going to do it. Even if all these other guys fall away, I am there to the end. I'm with you. And Jesus says, before morning comes, you will deny three times you even know me. And he does. Because Jesus is arrested. The crowd is whipped into a frenzy. They're beating him. They're mocking him. And somebody sees Peter. Hey, hey, he's one of the Galileans. He's with that guy. Peter, no, no, you got the wrong guy. I know I kind of look like him, but no, no. And it happens again and again until he's cursing at people. No, I do not know him. I swear to you. This is the guy that Jesus said, all right, you're my man, Peter. And all the other disciples are the same way. When he was dying, breathing his last on the cross, how many of them were there? One. John is the only one that we have record of sticking around to the end. But he gathers these guys up. And he says, I am with you always. You're going to suffer. You're going to have disappointments. You're going to have setbacks. But I am with you. Jesus will accomplish the mission, not us. And that is is a thought, that is a truth that we need, that I need so desperately. Because I'm confident about the future of Trinity Church. This is an awesome day. I, I can't tell you how excited I have been for this day to get here and how excited I am to see where we go from here. But I have I have confidence about the future. But I'm not confident because of my abilities as a preacher. I'm not confident because of the abilities of of Pastor David, of Pastor Tom. I'm not confident because of Seth's singing or guitar playing. I'm not confident because of our nice, fancy building. I'm not confident because we're the coolest, most likable, most awesome group of people anywhere in Crestwood. I'm confident because Jesus is with us. And he promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Promises. And remember, all authority has been given to him I will never leave you or forsake you. Those bookends to this command, man, they are a warm pillow at night. He's with us. And he promises that he will establish his word. He will establish his church. He will be with his people. And that's why our success isn't defined by how quickly we grow or get our own building or hire a full-time staff or do all these cool churchy landmark things. Our success is defined by are we faithful to the mission? Do we do what Jesus calls us to do? And then the success from worldly perspective, all the results, they're up to God. Because I can't change people's hearts and you can't either. But we can be faithful. We can be obedient to this mission. And we can trust God with where we go from here. So, what do we do with this? Well, if you're a Christian, is this your mission? Is this how you're investing your life? Is this this what you want your life to be about? 
Are you being faithful in living this out? Because it's, again, it's, it's not just a mission for preachers. It's not just a mission for the spiritual special forces. All of us are called to make disciples. So are you making your life about that in some, in some way? And are you are seeking to be more obedient to that command? None of us are going to be perfectly executing the mission. But are you at least in the, in the ballpark? And what if you're not a Christian? Or what if you're still struggling with these ideas? Have you ever considered the claims of the gospel? I'm not calling you to consider pop culture Jesus who's really nice and says nice things and wants us to love everybody. He does want us to love people. But I'm asking you, have you ever considered this Jesus? The Jesus who says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Because that guy confronts us in a way that the Jesus of pop culture just doesn't. He has a message that matters, that says something, and that confronts me where I am and and lets me know I'm a wreck And I need grace. I need forgiveness in my life. And he freely offers it. And I hope that wherever you're at, that this is the day that you consider whether for the first time or the hundredth time the glory of the gospel message. And I hope that you'll join us on step two, three, and four as we walk this journey together as Trinity Church. Do you have questions about the gospel, about Jesus, about the church, about who we are, what we want to do? Man, Grab me, grab one of the other pastors after the service. Let's start a conversation. Let's ask those questions. We are not afraid of questions here. We invite them. And we want to to help you get to know Jesus better, help you get to know his church better, and find a way for you to plug in and be a part of what he's doing. So grab us. Let's go grab coffee one day this week. Let's have those conversations. And then we want to create a way immediately for us all to respond to this message because God's word demands a response. It demands that we respond to it in some way, shape, or form. And that's why we're going to be ending our sermons every week by observing communion. We're going to take some time to reflect on Jesus' death uh, and, and proclaim that he is risen from the dead, that he is with us forevermore, that we are going to, to fulfill his mission, that everything that we do is because he died for us. And so to start getting our hearts ready for that, we're going to put a passage of scripture up here, uh, and I'm going to read through, to, and we'll talk a little bit about what communion is, how we do it here at Trinity, and where we go from here, how we can respond to the message through what's to come. This is in 1 Corinthians. Paul says to the Corinthians, uh, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 29. So I read that text to remind us of why we do what we do. Jesus, and before he died on the cross, he gave us this observance, the Lord's Supper, communion, as a way to remember him, to remember the sacrifice that he gave. He gave us bread and reminded us that just like this bread is broken, my body is going to be broken. He raised a cup of wine and said that my blood is going to be poured out like this cup for your sins and or for your sins to, to bring you to God. And then he, the church began to observe communion, to eat the bread, to drink the wine, and to remember 
in a very tangible, sensory way that, that Christ has given everything he has for us. And so we end our, our, our sermons with communion every week because, number one, it forces whoever's doing the preaching, we got to land the plane on the gospel runway because communion reminds us Christ died for us. Everything that we do, we do in response to that. And it also gives us a chance to respond. The text talked about examine yourself. This is a great time to take stock of your life, to, to look at, you know, am I being obedient to God, to confess sin, to, to ask his help and his guidance, and to remember we do all that we do because he gave everything for us. And so when we, when we meet together for communion, this is, a, this is something for Christians to take part in. So if you are a baptized follower of Jesus, whether you're a visitor or a member, we encourage you to participate in communion with us and to, to observe what we're going to do here in just a moment. Uh, the band is going to come up. They're going to play quietly for us. We're going to take just a couple of minutes to, to sit. You can pray um, and and do business with God, reflect on what you've heard in the sermon today. And then when, once you're ready, we're going to get up. We're going to have a couple people in the back with a, a loaf of bread and a cup of wine. What you're going to do is just take, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the wine, and eat. And then you can return to your seat, and we're going to close today by singing. So, um, but if you're a Christian, if you're a baptized follower of Jesus, you've made that profession with your life, then we invite you to partake in communion with us. If, if that's not who you are, if you said, I'm, I'm not there yet, I'm not following Jesus, then I would encourage you to take this time, abstain from communion, and, uh, and, and maybe reflect on what the Bible has told us. Maybe reflect on the sermon, on the gospel. Consider these things. If you've got questions, I'm going to hang out in the back. Um, you can come back, say hey, and, uh, and let's find a time where we can sit down this week and talk more about these things. Uh, but after, so the band, I'm going to invite them to go ahead and come up. Uh, to, to prepare by, by uh, playing. I'm going to pray for us. And then, like I said, take a minute, reflect on these things, and then when you're ready, you can move to the back, uh, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the wine, and remember. And, and know that in your remembering, you're also proclaiming not only Jesus' death, but his resurrection and the fact that he is coming again. We gather in anticipation of a Christ who is returning to set all things right. So I'm going to pray for us, uh, and then we're going to go ahead and continue with our worship. Father, thank you for your gospel. Thank you for reaching down to sinners, to people who are in need of grace, like me, like everyone in this room, and living and dying and rising so that we could be made a part of your family. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your church. And I pray that as we move forward as a church family, that you would help us to remain focused and passionate about these core things, about who you are and what you've called us to be. God, don't let us be distracted with our own ideas, with our own selfish passions, but God, may we put all things in submission to you and your mission and your glory. God, be glorified in Trinity Church, I pray. And as we take this time and as we, we reflect through communion, God, may you remind us of what a great price that you have paid in order to bring us to yourself. God, thank you for the cross. Thank you for Christ's broken body and his shed blood that makes me whole again. And God, may you be glorified in us as we proclaim your death until the day that you come and make all things right. We thank you and praise you in all of this. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. All right.